Greetings all and welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, So it's hot again. Big surprise for June. You know, I was in Chicago with Justine and her family once for Christmas. I think this is early 90s. Got to experience my first blizzard. And yes, I almost died from severe coldness. But during that time, I promised God I wouldn't complain about the heat as long as he wouldn't make me live in Chicago. And that thought actually has brought me some comfort this past week when it was so hot. Not much, but some. All right, so we're going to shift gears here for a few weeks and talk about one of my favorite books of the Bible, the book of Job. And if you've ever tried to read Job, you might find it surprising that this is one of my favorites. It's a little hard to read and... In some places, it can be more than a little boring and repetitive. And I think I made a surprising statement in our last episode that this book is foundational for the Gospels. It's certainly a statement I ought to explain a little. But I'm hoping you'll let me explain that slowly and indirectly over the next few episodes. My hope is by the time we get to the end of this, you'll understand why I said what I said. So, let me ask you a question. Do you know... What the book of Job is about. All right, here's another question. Have you ever read the entire book without skipping anything? You see, I think there's a lot of folks who don't read Job, and they don't for some pretty good reasons. I mean, first, Job's a difficult book, but not many people would dispute that. It's such a difficult book that I don't think many people who didn't actually have to would ever choose to read it for fun. And many people who think about reading Job start with good intentions and then quit after too much of Job's whining. Um, My guess is a lot of people never make it past chapter 20. A second, I think there are a lot of folks who don't read Job because of the implications of the questions that it raises. I mean, there are issues here about suffering and the goodness of God and the plight of humanity in the face of cosmic forces. And these are questions we might not want to know the answer to. We might not want to engage those things. It's scary, right? So I think some people might shy away from those conversations. And no doubt, Job is also a book that inspires strong feelings from folks. And I bet that if you went out into the street and asked a thousand people about the book of Job, most of them would have an opinion about it, even if they hadn't actually read it cover to cover. If you ask those thousand people what the book of Job is about, I think most of them would say something like, well, it's about suffering. Or, you know, God seems really cruel in that book. Or, it just proves that we're all sinners and deserve to suffer. These are typical comments about the story, but are they fair? Are they accurate? Do they represent what early readers of Job would have thought or understood? Or are we missing the point of Job, either because we're culturally too far removed from it, or because we just haven't spent enough time in it? For all of those reasons, I thought we should spend the next few episodes studying Job. Now, don't panic. I know the word study can cause panic. But what I mean is we're going to do more than just read it. We're going to struggle with it and take it apart and put it back together until we find ourselves quiet enough to hear the Holy Spirit speaking to us about it. It'll be fun. Trust me. And you might ask with all of this difficulty why we would bother. But remember that bold statement I made. I think this is... A foundational book. I think the concept is important for us if we are going to be people who say we believe in Jesus. I think what Job teaches is going to be important. So we're going to do it. And 
while I'm very anxious to dive right into chapter one, there's stuff we should do first. You know, I really want to give you some tools to read this book with. Job is complicated content-wise, but also structurally. So I want to talk about some of those background things so that we have a good interpretive footing and so that you don't think I'm making this stuff up, right? So one of the first things I want to say about Job might seem complicated at first, but it's really a simple concept. One I got from a really good commentary from Carol Newsom. Job is a polyphonic text, which is a fancy way of saying it's a text of multiple voices. And this is one of the most vivid characteristics of Job. Everyone speaks and everyone expresses their own ideas about suffering and the nature of God. And maybe the reality is that there's no single answer to the problem of suffering. If you ask the question, why is there suffering? There could be multiple answers that all contain some truth. And it might take all of them to begin to encompass the universal scope of the problem of suffering, right? There's no pad answer. There's no, there's no t-shirt slogan. Suffering is, right? Actually, suffering is, that's the one thing we know for certain. But as to the why, I don't know that we'll ever really boil it down to a t-shirt answer. So as you read Job, listen to the voices, listen to Job and hear his lament, even as he starts repeating himself. Listen to his friends and pay attention to the argument they try to make over and over. Listen to the bizarre testimony of Elihu, who we didn't even know was there at first. And then listen to the voice of Yahweh, who does finally speak. And while you're listening, think about what they're saying and how each voice joins the orchestra of the whole, participating in the text to help us understand something in the nature of God. Even the voices that get God wrong add something. And by the time we finish, what we'll see is that Job isn't really about suffering, but uses suffering as the vehicle to take us where it wants us to go. A better understanding, uh, well, I don't want to give it away just yet. All right, so now the actual text of Job is a little complicated and difficult to follow sometimes, so I want to give you a good outline of the text to help you kind of navigate your way through it. So the first section is chapters 1 and 2. And it forms kind of a prose prologue, an introduction to the book. The first thing you notice about the text is that it actually switches between prose and poetry. The first two chapters form the prologue, and it's written in pretty straightforward prose. Sounds like any other story you might find in the Old Testament. And then the last half of the last chapter does the same thing, a prose epilogue. And if you cut out all of the poetry, that's all you'd be left with, chapters 1 and 2 and that last half of chapter 42. And what you'd get is kind of a summary of the story of Job. Okay, But don't make the mistake of thinking chapters 1 and 2 aren't that important. They're really, really important. They're foundational for understanding some of what's going on inside Job. So pay close attention to those first two chapters. The next section, the big section, is the dialogue cycles. Right? This is chapters 3 through 27, and this is that section where Job and his friends are arguing, maybe, about Job's condition, right? And it forms kind of a cycle that repeats itself three times. It's a, it's a repeating cycle, right? And so here's Job and his three friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, or as I like to call them, Eli, Bill, and Zoe. They show up to, you know, quote unquote, comfort Job. And here's how the cycle goes, right? Job whines and then Eli speaks and then Job responds. And then Job whines some more and then Bill speaks and then Job responds. And then Job whines some more and then Zoe speaks and then Job responds, right? This goes through three cycles. 
But if you read them carefully, what you'll see is the cycles begin to break down in the second pass. And by the third cycle, well, Bill gets cut off and Zoe never even has a chance to speak. And I don't think that's an accident, right? You really get a sense from this that things are spiraling out of control, right? The cycles are breaking down. And you'll see that as we move to the end of that section. And I know it's frustrating, but try not to get too frustrated. It's a long section and there's a lot of repetition. And it sounds like each of the friends are saying the same thing just in different ways. And you're right if that's what you see. Job does a lot of whining. You're right about that, true. A lot of defending himself to the three friends, right? But there are moments in here who are really important. So just the, the, the overarching idea of what's happening along with those special moments are the reason to read this section carefully anyway. So don't skip it and try not to fall asleep in the middle. The third section is kind of odd. Chapter 28 is a beautiful wisdom poem. Yep, you heard me. A poem about wisdom in chapter 28, right in the middle of the action. No warning, no setup. And when it's done, the story just picks up again. Now, we'll spend some time talking about wisdom when we get there, but don't think that just because it's only one chapter long, it's somehow less important than the others. Job's discussion of wisdom will help us in our understanding of suffering and the nature of God. And I think it's interesting that this chapter just shows up right when we need to start thinking about wisdom, right when we need to start deciding which voices we want to listen to. Then comes chapters 29 to 31. This is Job's final lament. He's going to spend three more chapters whining about his condition, right? Um, and also not unimportant. We might not spend a whole lot of time talking about them, but you should read them. And then comes chapters 32 to 37, where something surprising happens. Elihu speaks up. And I know what you'll be thinking. Elihu? Elihu? And where the heck did he come from, right? For 31 chapters, no one bothered to mention Elihu. Not once. This is the first time he's mentioned. We didn't even know he was there. And then, just like that, he'll disappear after chapter 37, and he's never mentioned again. I mean, what the? All right, so his bizarre appearance and disappearance causes some scholars to suggest that Elihu is kind of a late addition to the text, that some late author added him to an original text that was, you know, Elihu-free. Either way, he serves a very important purpose in the story, and we'll talk about that in a later episode. In the meantime, read Elihu's speech, and see if you find anything surprising. He chastises the three friends for speaking nonsense. But really, how different is his message to Job? Hmm. And it's all fun and games through chapter 37, right? Elihu just speaks nonstop through six solid chapters. About halfway through chapter 36, he starts to proclaim the greatness of God. A God, it seems, he has perfectly figured out. And when chapter 38 opens, Job doesn't get a chance to respond to Elihu at all because in chapter 38, it gets real. That's when Yahweh shows up. This sixth section, chapter 38 to 41, is one of my all-time favorite parts of the Bible. In this section, God, who has remained silent up to this point, in the face of some pretty serious accusations, he finally speaks. And what God says is difficult to interpret if you haven't really studied what came before. But in the context of this book, this section is amazing. And if you, if you read these chapters out of context, God might sound like a bragger who goes off on a tangent about a crocodile and a hippopotamus and never really answers Job. But if you read the whole book, you'll see that God actually does answer Job's questions. Not the whiny questions, 
but the real ones that lie underneath. And I want you to watch for something. Through all of Job's whining, chapters 3 through 27, think about the way Job refers to God. It's subtle, but watch for it. Watch what Job calls God in those chapters, and then think about who shows up in chapter 38. It's actually kind of cool. We'll spend quite some time on this section. We'll really struggle to hear what God is actually saying, the questions he's actually answering, right? After all, if there's an answer to suffering, God ought to know what the answer is, right? All right. Now, there are some common questions about the book of Job that many people struggle with. And I hope that as we talk about this book, you'll either find answers to your questions or maybe discover they're the wrong questions. Let's deal with some of that obvious stuff right up front, right? People often ask questions like, is the story of Job real or not? Is, is it history or fiction? Or why is Satan allowed in heaven? Or why does God seem so cruel? Now, hopefully our answers will be fleshed out in the coming episodes, but I want to take an initial stab at some of these. First, some people wonder if this is a true story. There was actually a guy named Job who actually suffered like this, right? And I think that might be the wrong question. It kind of implies an either-or situation. The fact is, a story can be fictional and still be true. So let me put it this way. Is the parable of the Good Samaritan a true story? You see the problem? I mean, it's highly unlikely that there was an actual Samaritan traveling down the road, blah, blah, blah. But the story is true in that what it's meant to convey is true. Jesus told the story not to relate a historical event, but to illustrate a universal truth about love, a difficult truth about love. So is the story true? Of course it is. So instead of asking if Job's a true story, the right question should be, is it a historical story or a fictional tale just meant to convey a certain truth like a parable? And the answer is, I don't know. And I don't think I care. The truth of the story does not depend on its historicity, but in the wisdom it's meant to convey. And that's true whether this is a historical tale or a parable. I mean, it's not like the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. The Bible itself is clear. The truth of that story depends entirely on it having actually happened. It makes claims that are only substantiated by the historical event. But the story of Job is different. What it's meant to teach, what what it actually conveys, is true whether it's a historical event or a parable. Now, the text as we have it is constructed like a parable. The instruction and structure suggest common and well-known story. It was passed from generation to generation. And if I had to guess, I'd say there probably was a man and he suffered something spectacular and learned something new about who God is. But the story was embellished under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, And it was passed down in order to emphasize this teaching about the nature of God. The written version we have is probably like a parable, but a parable based maybe on something that has been preserved for centuries in oral tradition. But you decide. And in the end, it still won't matter. All right, let's talk about question two. Why is Satan allowed in heaven? Now, that's a good question. And the problem with this issue comes from our standard English translations combined with everything we think we know about the chronology of Satan's fall from heaven. So let's start with the Hebrew text. The Hebrew words used in chapters 1 and 2 are hasatan, which literally mean the accuser. It's likely this was not meant as a proper name in this very early text, but was a title that became a proper name. The NIV, the King James, the American Standard Versions, 
They all translate these words as Satan with a capital S. The New Living tries a more literal translation, but ends up with the accuser, Satan. Even the NRSV chooses Satan as a proper name. However, Uncle Eugene in the message calls him Satan, who was the designated accuser. Now, this is a little bit more accurate way to think about Hasatan. What's being referenced here is not the devil as we know him today, red with horns and a pointy tail who was thrown out of heaven, but a heavenly being with a particular God-assigned role in the heavenly court. He was the accuser. He was the one who brought accusations before the heavenly court, kind of like the prosecuting attorney does today. Now, think back to our discussion of Revelation 12. Almost everything we think we know about the fall of Satan comes not from the Bible, but from John Milton and his Paradise Lost, right? We all know that Satan was cast out of heaven after Genesis 3, after Satan tempted Eve in the Garden of Eden. But Revelation 12 suggests something else, doesn't it? It suggests the possibility that it happened much later than that. And the implication in Job is that this creature fulfilled the role of bringing accusations against humanity before the heavenly court. But when Jesus Christ was born, this Hasatan realized that Jesus would answer all accusation against God's people for all time with his death and resurrection. His job was gone. So an all-out rebellion was all he had left. So here in this ancient story of Job, we see the scene of the heavenly court in chapters 1 and 2. The heavenly beings appear before God, El, and do stuff. And the idea of the heavenly court is not uncommon in the ancient Near Eastern literature. Other religions of the area also understood this idea of a judicial-sounding conference where the gods and heavenly beings assembled before the high God, the judge, and debated matters in order to come up with resolutions to problems. It's a common ancient Near Eastern image. And think about the elements of a courtroom drama, the judge, witnesses, jury, defendants, and lawyers. And one of those lawyers is the prosecuting attorney, the accuser. In this story, the accuser comes to the heavenly court from his journey, going to and fro on the earth, and it appears that his job is to bring accusations, primarily against human beings. So, big question, why is Dave going on and on about this? What's the big deal? Well, the role of Hasatan in this story is critical to understanding everything that goes on in the rest of the book. He brings an accusation against Job, which, in the big picture, is actually an accusation against humanity. And it's precisely this accusation that the book revolves around. And we'll deal with that a lot more detail in the next episode. But for now, we really just need to understand this creature as the accuser, right? We can think of him as Satan, but maybe before he was kicked out forever and not allowed back in, right? And as the accuser, he's one with a designated role in the heavenly court. Not the red-tailed enemy of God, but the one who brings accusations, okay? And that's going to get fleshed out as we go forward. Now on to question three, why does God seem so cruel? Now, I want you to think this through with me, right? When I ask that question, why does God seem cruel? You might cringe a little bit. Those of us who love Jesus, love God, follow him sincerely with all of our hearts are are going to struggle with this because this can't be true, can it? But I want you to think through this with me. Job is a righteous man who suffers. You understand what I'm saying? And it's not like he's mostly a righteous man. It's also impossible to use the, the familiar, you know, there's no such thing as a good person argument here. Job is a righteous man. We, we know he's a righteous man. And we know that for two reasons. One, 
The narrator tells us straight out he's a righteous man. But more than that, God says it in the story twice. So Job is a righteous man, period. And yet he suffers greatly during the story. All right, so what do we do with that? Job does not deserve to suffer, right? Then God submits Job to suffering in order to what? Win a bet with Hasatan. And it's tough to justify this behavior. And Job himself calls God to the witness stand to answer for this cruel behavior. So we're faced with the question, why does God seem so cruel? Now, it's a dangerous question. It's it's the one that underlies all of our other questions. It's the question of doubt in the goodness of God. And yeah, we all try to avoid this question because of what it implies. If God really is cruel, then he's not good. And what does that do to our theology? Why even go to church on Sunday? This, this is unthinkable to us because life has meaning in the story of Christ. And if God is not that God, life is nothing or worse. So we don't answer that question. We avoid the question. We find excuses for God's actions and we, we try to justify what happens in some other way in order to avoid the possibility that God really is cruel. But look, if we're going to study Job We can't avoid the hard questions, right? It's precisely the hard questions we have to deal with in this book. Now, unfortunately, I can't answer that question yet. Ultimately, it's the answer to this question we'll be seeking over the course of this entire study. How do we interpret the suffering of an innocent man in the context of a God who permits it? And taken further, how do we justify the horrible things that happen to good people in our day and age, like a child dying of cancer? If God is who we think he is, then even if he didn't give her the cancer, he at least allowed her to suffer. So why? So our study will have at its heart the desire to know God better. And in that honest pursuit of our God, we will not avoid the hard questions, okay? And I believe that we will find our answer in the text if we just have the courage to stick it out, okay? All right, so I want to encourage you and challenge you with something. Look, there's no person out there who doesn't need an answer to these questions, right? No one is immune from suffering, hasn't wondered why God would allow people to suffer. I mean, it's very easy as a pastor for me to be philosophical and sage when someone else is suffering and comes to me for advice. But when it's me, when I'm on the hot seat, when I am going through it, right? It's difficult. It's hard stuff. I had a friend express even just this week, why is life so hard? This is something we're all dealing with. This is what we're going to try to do through the study of Job. We are going to try to know God better. And we're going to ask the hard questions and we're going to look them square in the eye and, and see what answers Job has to give us. But trust me, trust me, and I think a lot of you may already know this, I wouldn't bring you down this road if I didn't think it ended up someplace good, right? All right, so stick with me through this. And we're going to jump in way, way deep in the water in the next episode. All right. In the meantime, I want you all to pray with me. And again, same rules apply. If you're driving, keep your eyes on the road. If you're watching kids, keep your eyes on the kids. Whatever it is you're doing, keep your eyes and your mind on that. Just let your hearts pray with me right now. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your word that tells us that you love us. Lord, sometimes we struggle with 
the difficulties of life. And Job's a book that doesn't shy away from that, right? Job's a book that makes us stare right into that question, Lord. So we are going to stare at it and we're going to struggle with it, Lord. But there is no wisdom apart from you. So as we go through this, Lord, we pray that you would guide us and lead us to truth and to knowing you better, because that's why we're doing this. We want to know you better. Lord, we pray that you'd protect us all, guide us all, and we'll praise you just because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Can't wait till the next one. It's going to get real. And until then, peace. Peace.